The Poetic Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Poetic Podcast with me, Jay Rosanna. In this episode, we will be taking a journey through the life of the wonderful multilingual poet, E.O. Osborne. Hello, welcome back. Today we have coffee and cream cakes and poetry. Earlier this year, I was fortunate to be at a poetry reading with today's guest, E.O. Osborne, and was captivated by the performance and vocal quality of what I was hearing. Let's listen to an extract of E.O. reading her beautifully crafted poem, Farfalla Regina. Farfalla Regina Vuela farfalla ver les arbres Hacia el calmo horizonte Senti, senti el sonno de la mer Qui se le secret des nuages Et toi, qu'est-ce que tu penses, Schmetterling? Was bist du eigentlich? Was für Sprache spricht's? En qué piensas cuando vuelas? Et toi, qui es-tu? Quién eres? Qui sei? Aunque sei mariposa, mariposa que vuela vers la mer, au-delà des arbres, là-haut, sur la mer, su nel cielo, di sopra al mare, farfalla flit, flit si vite, elle ne tombe jamais, elle ne tombe pas parmi les vagues, ne se mouille pas las alas. Es mariposa una farfalla que vuela y flota sur la mer. Elle n'a pas peur de caer. Sientes, sientes las alas que mueven. Senti, senti farfala que vuela. Slushi, slushi, lieti babuchka sopra el mare. What a spellbinding performance. And now the sun is shining. So come with me and let's head out to the summer house to talk art and poetry and life, stepping through the beaded curtain to meet E.O. Osborne. E.O. Osborne, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you, Jay. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I would say I'm partly European. I live in England. My mother was English, so I've lived here for a very, very long time now. And I was actually born in America, but I, I left America when I was seven years old and went to live with my father in Spain. It's interesting, actually, because we weren't expecting to stay in Spain. And my father, who was an artist, really didn't know what to do with us. So he sent us to a boarding school in Spain, a feminist, fascist, Catholic boarding school. And within one month, we had lost our mother, our language and our country. So it was quite a transition. What kind of ages were you there? Seven. So it was, wow. it was my father made everything sort of magical for us and 
my mother was remarried with a guy who was still a student. They were all young and things, and we didn't have any money and things. And when we went to Daddy, Daddy had this beautiful place in Spain, swimming pool, people who cook and butler and the whole thing that you used to have in those days, well, they did. Kind of like this magical thing. We could run down to the beach and play and go wherever we wanted, ride horseback. And then when it came to saying, uh, oh, it's time to go back home, of course, we said, oh, we don't want to, but of course, that's what children say. Oh, was it so, a large boarding school? Well, we went what, to a very size? small boarding school outside of Madrid. We had to fly up there, up in the mountains outside of Madrid. It was called Rasca Fria, which means cold scratch. Okay. And in the winter, it was extremely cold. Right. And in the summertime, it was hot. But, of course, we weren't there in the summer. We were in the south in the summer. And it was a boarding school. We didn't speak the language. We didn't speak any Spanish. We didn't know Spanish culture or anything like that. But in retrospect, actually, as far as education was concerned in Spain at the time, we actually got a, a, a quite a high education because it was kids came from all over Spain. But they were only about, first year I was there, only about 30 children. And so I was in a class of 11. At first I had to, to learn to speak Spanish before I could move into the next year. So I spent two years and I didn't go into, you know, in primary school, I didn't go into the next stage until I was 10, because I was too young to, to go on. It was a mixture of um, being terrifying, not being popular, getting bullied a bit, and things like that. Were you there, like, all the time, or, or during yeah, the week? Yeah, it was boarding school. Okay. We didn't see our parents for three months. And in those days, the trip from Malaga, which is in the south of Spain, up to the school was about eight, ten-hour trip. It was an arduous trip because there were no motorways in those days. He dropped us off, and I was suddenly inside this building, and then I can just remember seeing him drive away, and I couldn't believe it, that he was going. He was actually driving away, and we were going to be there on our own. Yeah, it was confusing. It was scary. It's but been terrifying. You're in the moment. So you're just in a kind of almost like a survival mode. Okay, so what do I do next? What happens next? What happens next? But the thing that was most overwhelming was I missed my mother. And I, I, I didn't know, I wasn't allowed to communicate with her because she wasn't supposed to know where we were. Okay. So he basically kidnapped us. And, uh, and, and then he wrote to her and said, well, you're not having the kids back. So she lost her two children. And, and did you uh, get to stay together? My um, sister and I. While you were there? Or my were sister and I were together, yeah. Uh, she kind of went into her own world and kind of didn't want to have too much to do with me. Um, and I was a bit of a crybaby because I missed my mother. I was younger. It makes me cry and I can't talk about okay. it without getting tears. It's, I, I, it still affects me today. And I can remember what it felt like, what it looked like uh, with incredible accuracy because I've actually seen photographs of the place and I'm, I'm right about it. Right. In the you know, I found the photographs on the internet from the old days and one thing and another, and I'm right about where the chairs were, where the position of the things were, what the place was looked like, what the whole thing. Yeah. So, I have a very keen memory uh, of my past, which is one of the reasons why I write my 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 writing of my memoirs, as I call it. It's sort of like I'm, I weave them into stories, sort of like that. Was it very strict? Yeah, it was pretty strict. I mean, we weren't allowed to. Um, we went for a walk with the teachers. I think, I can't remember how often, probably about twice a week or three times a week. But we weren't allowed to do a lot of things. We weren't allowed to kick a ball. We weren't allowed to climb trees uh, or anything like that. And so if you did something that you weren't allowed to do, you got punished. They punished me once and uh, they told me to stay and I, and I didn't. I, was, I rebelled. And so they locked me in what at the time was, was the pharmacy. 
It was just a room and it was on the second story. It had a window. The infirmary, which I had been in because I used to get sick a lot because I wasn't used to the bugs and things like that. I used to get lots and lots of flus and things like that. So I'd stayed in the infirmary with some beds there. And I knew that there was a window in the infirmary. So I climbed out of the, the pharmacy window across the side and climbed back in through the infirmary window with a huge drop underneath me, which yeah. could have, would have killed me if I'd fallen. But I did it, and I just went straight down to the headmistress's office, and I said, I'm, I'm here, don't lock me in again, because I'll, I'll climb out the window again. I don't want to be locked in, don't lock me in. Then, of course, everybody in the school found out that I'd done this, so it made me popular, so I started doing it as a stunt. Connie, let's see you do it, you know, and things like that. So yeah. I would go and do dangerous things. And then I had to spend the whole weekend saying, I won't climb out of windows, writing, I won't climb out of windows, uh, you know, and stuff like that. Getting in trouble, not being able to go out. So we're performing at that age, I was really. performing at that age. We had a competition, which was, oh, grammar. Learning Spanish was, was one thing, but then all the whole structure of grammar and mm. was difficult. I had one teacher, a uh, Latin teacher. She, if in, in Spain, if you didn't pass every single one of your 14 exams or 16 exams, you didn't pass on to the next year. And to be left behind one year was terrifying because everybody was a year older than you. And I didn't understand the Latin. I didn't understand the grammar. And I just didn't get it. And this teacher, she suddenly stood there, Eli Mari, her name was, and she said, you're going to, you're going to fail and you're going to go back another year and you're going to stay in awe. She got really passionate about it. And I said, I said, I don't understand it and everything. You know, I, I was very explosive and expressed myself like I do now, still, I'm afraid. But anyway, so she said, what do you want to understand it, you know? And I said, of course I want to understand it. And she did something which was unheard of. She actually said to me, okay, if you really want to understand it and you're serious about it, you can come to my room tonight and I'll give you some help. You never got help like that. And to go up to the teacher's rooms, that was sacred spot up at the top, yes. up in the attic, like they were in the servants' quarters, the poor wow. girls. And so I went up there and she explained something to me and I sort of half understood it and things like that. And she gave me a little exercise to do and I sat down and I I worked on it and worked on it and went on. And then the next day, next time, next night, I went back up to her and I said, well, so, you know, and she said, and she gave me a little bit more and stuff like that. And then I, all of a sudden it was just crystal clear to me. Okay. And as soon as I understood the Latin, I understood all the Spanish. And it was just fascinating. And I, all of a sudden this whole world opened up. It was amazing. We said it happened with maths, but it never worked with maths, but it worked with grammar. And then there was this national writing competition among all schools, you know. And so you had to write a story. And I wrote a story, which was a fairy tale. It was called Como Vinieron los Vieros Irregulares al Mundo. It was a very long title. They, nobody advised me to put a different title, so that's what I did. Which means, how did irregular verbs come into place? Very simple fairy tale that there was the, the regular verbs who were normal, and there were the irregular verbs who were a bit like me, rebellion, right? And that they were fighting the king and queen, the, the, the kings of the two, count, you know, they didn't understand each yes. other. And then, of course, the, the, the princess and the prince, they fall in love with each other and then they come together and then they live happily in harmony and they all work together. Yes. And I won the competition. Well done. Yeah, yeah I know. And, and, of course, because I wasn't native Spanish, even, that gave me even more... Kudos, because I'd written the whole thing, obviously, in Spanish. Wow, that must have, that, you must so have felt like a great sense of achievement. Well, I was amazed, and that was the first 
That was the first two years I was in the school. And then the third year, uh, Loli arrived. And Loli was like, she, we, we took to each other. But she, and she was popular. She had that ability just to be incredibly popular. Right. And everybody loved her. And we formed a band, a little pandilla. It's called a kind of a group. You know, and we did things like we'd, we'd, we'd go for a walk, we'd escape from the school. And I was always saving animals because there was such cruelty to animals in those days. It was horrific. And we had an incredible pond right above the school on, uh, that you could access if you went on the side. And it was teeming with every kind of wildlife you can imagine. And when, when we went for walks, it was a beautiful spot where we were. But when we went for walks, the little libellulas, the, um, the dragonflies, right? Yes. They'd be flying along and you could literally pick one out wow. of the air like that. And I'd turn it around and I would look at it. And I, and I was fascinated because if I looked at it like this, it looked really ferocious. But when you look down on it like that, it looked really beautiful. sweet. Yes. They're really sweet little faces they had. And it was just, I was in love with nature completely. And biology was my favorite subject, absolutely my favorite subject. And uh, because we had a wonderful biology teacher and she took us out for walks. Yes. You see, so we got to see... There were these, these I can't remember what they're called, they're black, and they got horns, these beetles, they're really big beetles, and they got horns on like them. The stag beetles. Stag beetles. Like, yeah. And there were stag beetles and things, and whenever we went for walks with the girls and things, like, if they saw something, like, they'd step on it. And I was always going, no, 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 no. I was always trying to save animals from this cruelty. Yes. And then we had one nurse who came, uh, oh, she was lovely, and she was like me. She loved animals as well. And everywhere you went, you could see cruelty to animals. And wherever I went, I always found either a dog or a cat that had been abandoned. So I would sort of pick them up and bring them back to the school. We would hide, she would help me to hide them. And uh, we would hide them from, you know, from teachers. Once I, I got caught with a little kitten in my bedroom, which wasn't a good thing to happen. I got a poem about getting up to salute the flag at four o'clock in the morning. And you had to do this stuff for Franco and all this. Arriba Franco, arriba Franco. And we used to say, uh, we used to sort of like change the, the words and things like that because, you know, we were all rebellion against against the whole the fascist move, obviously, of because course. it was fascist. Right? But I used to always have my skirts, my, my clothes. I was a mess. Things were hanging out. I, I, I just wasn't tidy. I just didn't know how to be tidy. And uh, my hair wasn't right, my clothes. We had this inspection, and this woman, we used to call her the mouse, uh, Raton. And when she came for the inspection, once a year, she'd come and very formal. The whole thing was very, there's the inspection now from the phalanche, from the big wigs, you know. Yes. They're coming up to school. So all the school would be, all the teachers would be saying, get your rooms tidy, get everything right. You know, the girls have to look right. And this woman came up to me and my, my hem on my skirt was all undone. She was kind to me. And she said, and I said, I don't, I don't know how to sew it up. I've tried sewing it up. I'm not, I don't know how to sew it up. And she very, very kindly sewed it up for me. And she was really, really sweet to me. It, yeah, she was like a mother. She was so affectionate. She was so kind to me, this little woman that everybody feared, you know. And there she was, you know, sewing my skirt for me and things like that. She just sat and she sewed up my skirt for me. And she sort of like straightened out my little top and, you know, fixed me up a bit. And yeah. sort of like put me right and things like that. And I reminded my sister of that. And I said, you remember that woman, you know? And she said, oh, we used to call her a raton. She was called the mouse. And she said, do you know who she was? And I said, no, I have absolutely no idea who she was. She said, so she's Franco's sister. Oh. Can you believe it? Really? Franco's sister sewed up my skirt. <laughs> anyway, so I was there until I was 14. 
the thing that jumps to me in my mind is like if everybody thought that she was this harsh, um, strict person, is it the vulnerability you think that because you were just sort of left there to get on with your own devices, yeah. were you more receptive than um, to receptive. even the kindest? Anybody who was kind to me, yes, I was receptive. I can imagine. If anybody was kind to me, I was receptive. And oh, we only had female teachers, and we had one priest. And he was a Dominican priest. And he used to come to the school uh, to teach us religion. He was a good man. Uh, obviously, I was, you know, my sister and I, we didn't have to go to Mass because we weren't Catholic. So my sister and I used to sometimes, well, we would, we'd be very, we'd be nervous about it. So I remember we would go and hide in the showers when, when while Mass was going on. There was a girl who, very bright, Afrika Chayen, her name was. She was brilliant, absolutely brilliant at everything. And we were try we were studying, and the girls were all making a noise in one thing. You know, so Africa was it was bothering her. And there was an adjacent room, so she just picked up her 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 studies and stuff like that, and went to the next room. And it was bothering me as well. So I sat there for a while with all, all them messing around and things like that. And I thought, oh, I'll go to the next room as well, follow Africa. And as I was walking out of the room, they grabbed me from behind, they threw me down on the floor, and they kicked the holy shit out of me. Okay. Yeah. It really kicked me. I mean, they really hurt me. And so I had like bruises, black eyes, the whole thing, and one thing or another. And the following day, the priest came and, and he came into the classroom to give us our religious, religion class. And um, you see, because I was, act, I was, I wasn't, she, Africa was allowed to behave like that, but I wasn't. It's funny, isn't it, how kids are? Yes. And, um, and, and he came and he stood there and he stood up there and he looked at everybody and he looked right across the classroom like that and he says, there's two Christians in this room, me and Eo. You're not Christian. None of you are Christian. And he really gave them holy hell for it. That did something to my brain, the whole thing, that I would go and fervently pray in church, wanting desperately for Jesus Christ, God, the Virgin Mary, to appear. I wanted to do everything I could so I could be a saint. I got this idea into my head. I was focused on this idea that I could be a saint, that I could be, you know, I could be everything good. I could so, be so good and everything like that. And, and of course, it didn't happen, you know. <laughs> it, yes. it doesn't appear. The only thing appear are those little cards that they used to exchange with pictures of, of you know, in your, your prayer book. Okay. You know, and you have these little, to put, mark the page, and they have a picture of the Virgin, or it's got Christ, or something like that. And so they used to be, it was like having, like having football cards. You, yes, so how many you could collect you collect? Them. Yeah. yeah. That was the only Virgin I ever saw. So, but I tried. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so I got this idea that I wanted to become Catholic. That went around the school very quickly. Oh, he wants to be a Catholic. And all of a sudden, that, this, was, this was before Loli came, just before Loli came, before the third year. So it all went around the school. So the big moment came when I was going to talk to the priest. And everybody was being nice to me about it. All of a sudden, everybody was being really nice to me, right? Because I wanted to be a Catholic. I was going to convert. So I went to, this, uh, I went to the priest, and I sat down with him. And he said, bueno, he said, so, Io, que pasa, what's happening? And I said, uh, I said, oh, uh, I, I want to, you know, and I, I, I just effusively just exploded my tears running down, you know, the whole thing. And uh, he sat and he listened to me in one thing or another. And he just said to me, why do you want to get baptized and things and Catholic? And I said, oh, blah, blah, blah. And, and he said, 
it's been hard for you. you you're, you're having a bit of a hard time. I know that. And, but in a very nice way, he said it. And then he said, he said, you know, when we're young, we don't really know exactly what we want in life. And we find that out when we're older. He said, when you're 21 years old, this was the main gist of the thing. He said, when you're 21 years old, if you still want to become a Catholic, you come to me and I'll baptize you myself. He said, but in the meantime, he said, we'll just tell them that you have to wait because you're not old enough yet. That sort of like, I got presents given to me. It changed things okay. quite a lot. All of a sudden I had more friends. And then my father had an exhibition in, in Madrid. And my father was incredibly handsome man. Uh, all women loved him. He had, on top of that, he was an artist and he had this big exhibition in Madrid and it, it was printed and it was in the newspapers and things like that. And of course, all the teachers were like starstruck. They were all young. I mean, the headmistress was about 32, you know, and then he came up to the school, you know, and the, all the teachers were like falling over themselves over this incredibly American guy, uh, artist with this in the newspapers and all that sort of thing. So, of course, that gave me extra kudos hmm. and saved me until Loli came. And when Loli came, Loli and I became good friends and, and that resolved a lot. We almost got caught, kicked out of school. In fact, after I left, she was still one year in the school. She did actually get kicked out because she kept running away. And there was one girl, her name was Fatima, and she was uh, she had cerebral palsy. I think she must have been probably about 20. And when we went for walks and things like that, they, they used to kick her and throw sticks at her and things like that. And I remember always trying to sort of like, and Maggie did as well, my sister, we, we were always trying to sort of like, she was in a different class than me, so we didn't walk together. But when we walked in, we must have gone at the same walk sometimes. I can't remember why that was. Or maybe it was when we were walking to sing in the monastery, because we sang in the monastery one. I can't remember why, but, but I remember trying to shield her Fatima, you know, just trying to protect her from the other kids because, you know. And she used to say, she used to say to me, Ay, ¿por qué son tan malitas conmigo? Why are they so cruel to me? And I used to think, oh, and it was sort of like, you know. It was really hard. Yeah. I was very aware. It's a very funny mixture because I was both what people might think privileged and at the same time we were poor because we were neglected. We were left on our own, to our own devices. Not completely. I'm not saying my father neglected us completely, but the idea was you send the kids to boarding school. We want to have yes. them around. Yes, uh, You know, in the summertime we can entertain them a bit and do things with them, but otherwise... And so when I was at home, I could go down to the beach. I, I used to go off on my own all the time. I had a, I had a donkey, Estrellita, which I've written a story about. And Estrellita and I used to go everywhere together. I used to, I used to, I used to ride Estrellita into Torremolinos, tie her up to an olive tree, go dancing in the discos and come back and ride her back home again when I was older. Yeah, that's what it was like. So, and then my stepmother, who my father had married after my mother, she wanted to be a mother to us. She wanted to be good to us. She wanted, to, but she was an alcoholic. And it wasn't actually showing properly yet. She always used to stand there and say, I've got to be a little soldier in life. That's the one. And she did lots of things. She did, she, she, she would do things like she would teach us, uh, she would give us lessons in English, or she would sort of like get us to spell and write letters to family and things like that, to write letters. She was very, she'd lie in her bed. And then she would have us come into the room to have tea. We'd say, good evening, Mrs. So-and-so. And they have to talk and, and, and manners and 
teach us to stand up straight, all kinds of things that she had learned in order to raise herself in New York, being from some ghetto situation to meeting people like my father, who yes. were the, you know, of New York society, very high up in New York. Oligarchs, they're oligarchs. Those, those people are oligarchs. Yes. Nothing to do with me. Uh, I've always been a socialist in that sense. Yeah. I mean, for God's sakes, my friends were what we used to call it, what they called our servants. They were my friends. I used to play with yes. them. You know, I remember Annie used to say to me, "Don't fraternize with the servants." And I used to just be in with them all the time. And all Tita would be. I've I've uh, I've written a story called Educating Tita, which you would love, and uh, where I tried to tell Tita I thought she was a saint. Anyway, that's a whole other story. That was my life. That was it. Wasn't about the whole social thing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah absolutely. I can understand that. I mean, if if we go away and, and stay in hotels and stuff. You know, you can stay in all the nicest and poshest places that you like. Me, I like a travel lodge. Yeah, me too. It's just where I am. I know. And, and people go, well, why don't you go and stay in a better one? And I go, because I actually feel comfortable yeah. here. Yeah. I can just be me. Yeah. Whereas too. if I go somewhere like that, I'm feeling like I have to be someone other than me. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I don't and like I think, that. What the hell am I doing in this place? Yeah. I know, I know. Yeah. Oh, luxury. What luxury? You know, it really is. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the way I... That's the way I, And I think it, it's partly because in Spain, like, we were hungry most of the time. Strict. It was difficult. It was, uh, it was rules, you know. It was demanding. We had to... I mean, my father drove us twice to school. After that, we'd get from the school down to Madrid, then catch a train. Once we got the wrong train, and we went on the slow train, and it took... <laughs> Took us forty eight hours to get back home, oh, uh, and you know where the kids are. Oh, I don't know where the kids are, you know, and things like that. So it was very laissez faire to a certain extent. My father would never agree with that now. My sister had this idea that there was a road that went from where we lived down to the bottom, down to the sea. It was a, the main road, um, which is now sort of super highways and things like that. But that was the road that took us down to the main road that went to Malaga. And it was about probably about four kilometers or something like that, maybe five. It was a long okay. way. And we used to walk down there to the bottom and catch a bus and go into, into Malaga because once a week we had to go and play tennis by decree from Anita, my, my, my stepmother, because we had to be young ladies learn to play tennis. Of so, but we would often, when we came back in the evening, we'd walk up that road. And we'd pass sugarcane and things like that. And my sister's idea, she's so funny, because she said, she said, if we sing, then they'll know that we're just two little girls and they won't attack us. Which is, of course, exactly the opposite. Yes. <laughs> of what would happen. Let's not draw attention to ourselves <laughs> in any way. We would sing. So we'd be singing up the road. We'd be singing up the road as we walked. Unfortunately, we never. But there was a girl that did get murdered there. Oh. So it was yeah, out of the sugar cane, you know, because you were always. It's amazing to me to think. I mean, it doesn't sound true, but it's absolutely true. There was a guy in the Alameda. The Alameda de Malaga is a, is a, it's a long avenue, and it's got trees. It got a center thing, and then it's got side side rows and it's all trees in between and so on the center part it's it's got beautiful big trees on either side and then it's got an extra bit with fountains and things like that on that side mm-hmm. and they're covered in trees so it's quite dark behind there on those sides quite secretive yes. behind there. and there was one guy every single time we went down the Alameda he used to expose himself to us he used to come out and expose and we used to we in the end we would laugh at him 
And then he would disappear back in the bushes. So we'd say, hi, Mina, Mina, look, we'll look at him. And then he'd go run and he'd go back in the bushes and hide. But the amount of times that you were sexually assaulted was incredible. I mean, the first kiss I ever got was from a Guardia Civil. You know the, the civil guards? Right. It was a Guardia Civil. He took advantage of me when I was just like 11. It was just all the time. So you were always always being assaulted. I mean, it's amazing I never got assaulted when I was on my donkey or on my horse later. Uh, I did get assaulted on my donkey. Oh my God, yes, I did. And that was the one time that Daddy found out about it because I always used to go to Tita, my, my Spanish adoptive grandmother, the one that I wasn't supposed to fraternize with. And I would go to Tita and I would tell her and she's said, Hi, mi niña. And she was sort of like, you know, uh, I was riding home on my donkey and these two guys came by on a motorcycle and one of them got off the motorcycle and got on behind me on the donkey, jumped up onto the back of the donkey and started molesting me on the donkey. It hurt me. Wasn't able to do much because he was on a donkey, Absolutely. but he still grabbed me and yes. things like that. Scratched me up and stuff like that. And he I must I must have gotten, he must have fallen off or I must have gotten, or the donkey reared. I can't remember how he disappeared, but he did. And, and I went trotting on down and I got, I got back down to the house and I went to Tito and Tito saw me and she was like, Vamos a papa, we're going to daddy, we're going to daddy without this. And I said, no, 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 Tita, no, 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 you know, because I was thinking, oh my God, she won't let me ride my donkey, won't let me go out. But, and uh, she said, no, no, vamos. And, and so she went, took me around to dad, who was, he was in his, in his taller, in his studio working. She told him and things like that. And he went bananas. He put me in the car and he drove through every single village for four hours stopping in, in bars and cafes, asking questions. Trying. He went absolutely crazy, absolutely crazy. He was furious. I've never ever seen my father like that. And so, yeah, he was on a real, so he would have killed the guy. He, if he'd found them, he would, he would have shot them. No doubt about it. He would have killed them. No doubt about it. And it was a funny thing because in a way it was like, First, it was really alarming and things like that. And eventually it was, oh, I'm going for a nice long ride with Daddy. Daddy's going to spend some time with me. Because anything I could do with Daddy, Daddy to me was, and to my sister, he was everything. We wanted to be with him. I used to hide in the back of the car when, when he went out and things like that so that I could then be there when, wherever he was going. Or we'd go and visit friends and things like that. And i just sit there just wanting to, to him to stay and stay. And he was always one of these people get up to go. And he'd say, okay, I've got to go now. And then he'd stand up to go and things like that. And then he'd turn around and start telling a story. And then he'd be there for hours longer. And I just loved it. I just loved being with Daddy. Daddy was everything. He was I love being with Daddy. And um, have you in inherited some of your um, father's talent? artistic flair? I am by heart and soul. I am an artist. My and I say that because people can't see, but we're surrounded by well, artworks. That's mine. Well, that's mine. It's just, but th that's not mine. But that's mine. That's mine. That's mine. Yeah. Yes. So um, there's an awful lot. Of, yeah. So there's a lot of artworks. Art, yeah. Artworks. But I don't have my father. My father was amazing. They look pretty good to me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, they, they really do. Thank yeah. you. When you're at the boarding school, mm. that obviously created an intense set of memories that have formed into your memoirs. Mm. Were you conscious of, of that at the time because there was an, an artist in you or, or a creator in you 
um, that wanted to explore these things? Because obviously you, you're doing a lot with language. Yeah, yeah. but the language was something that I just, I just did automatically because I had yes, to do language. Yes, because you had to do it. I was writing poetry. You were writing poetry, so that's what I was trying to get to. And in yes. fact, Freddie Wildman, a friend of my father's, got, got hold of some of my poetry and, and he got it published, I can remember. And somewhere, that little booklet... I can't remember how I got I think my father gave it to me years and years and years later. Another little booklet I had when I first came to England, because my grandmother was English, and on our way over from America the first time, because we went, came over twice, once my father sent me back the second time, he didn't. I had a tiny little diary about that big that my grandmother, my English grandmother, gave us for our trip to England the first time. And we had to write down the things that they did. And one of the things that she organized is she wrote, because she was a royalist, she wrote a letter to the palace saying that her granddaughters were coming to visit and that she would love them to be able to see the queen. And she got back a letter from the secretaries or whoever, from the palace, saying that if we stood outside of Buckingham Palace at such and such a day, at such and such a time, that the queen would be coming out. I remember being dressed up and standing in the rain, quite dark because it was cloudy and raining, and these in front of these great big gates, and I was standing there with my sister. And I've asked my sister ten times over, were were there other people there? And she says, no, it was just us. We were the ones who were there. You were there with Gran. These gates opened, right, and this black car came out. And I can remember seeing the face in the window and I can remember seeing the glove. My sister says that the, low, the window was lowered. I can't remember the, the window being lowered, but I can remember seeing the glove and not really understanding what it was all about. But afterwards, I had to write in my little tiny diary, today we saw the Queen and she waved to us. And I had that in that diary and God damn it, I can't find it anywhere in my house and then we went to feed the pigeons in Trafalgar Square that's what it said in there and then you know every every day it was a tiny it was about five pages long with little childish handwriting but from the way you're indicating about the size of your palm it must have been very small no wonder you can't find it I can't find it and and one of the things about it is that it because it had been raining and it was wet that it was a little red cover on it some of it ran Okay. And so there was a little bit of pink on the on the writing as well from where it had run. Wow. And if I could ever find that again, I would just love to have that diary again. Well, it's around somewhere. Yeah. You never know. It'll it'll turn up one of these days. Yeah. So you were writing poetry very, very early on. Yeah, yeah, I was writing poetry, yeah. I was writing I mean they were just little little things. I lived with my mother for a very short while and I can't remember as a child very much. I can remember certain things. She had tuberculosis, and so we were separated from right. her for a year. We used to have to see her up on the bug. I've got a painting of that, which I can show you. How it used to feel to just be looking at her. And she made us these ballet tutus, because I think we had ballet classes or something. Okay. She made us... I've got a picture... Well, in my mind, I've, got a, well, I've got, actually got it in the, in the painting, of us standing there underneath, looking, waving up to her up on the balcony, not really understanding why it was that we couldn't... But she must have taught us an awful lot of nursery rhymes because I know English nursery rhymes really well. And she used to sing songs. I'm sure they used to sing sea shanties and stuff like that to us, which we both know. So I didn't learn them afterwards when my kids, so I yes. must have learned them at her feet. So it must have been that must have been that. And then there was this one poem that I absolutely love it. It was in a book, and there was a picture of of a little African child. 
and he gets chased by a lion or a tiger, I think it is. Yes, it's a tiger. And he goes running around and running around around the tree. The poem went, the tiny son of Marawambo met a tiger in the Congo. The tiger screamed and acted wild, but Marawambo's son just smiled. Mr. Tiger, old and fat, you're nothing but a great big cat. Scat! And that was that. <laughs> and it was like, I loved it. And then you had a picture of it. And it might have mixed it up with something else, but I can remember seeing this look like it turned into butter or something because the tiger had been going around the tree yes, so much, yes. so fast. Love that poem. But that you said it. you have a memory for detail. Yeah, I do. How does that work? Did you always know that you got a good memory for detail? Well, actually, yes. I'm a storyteller. I can tell yes. you stories. I could never stop. Being, there's always been creativity in my life. Yes. I mean, my father's art. I mean, my connection with my father was his art. I wanted to read you a poem about selling my father's art because my father and I were almost estranged because of his third wife. So she took against me in a big way. It's a very long story. And he took the coward's way out and uh, allowed her to keep me away from him. Oh. Uh, my sister had always kept diplomatic relations with her and she lived in Spain. So when, when they, whenever she needed help and things like that, she was always in touch. My sister was there, she was being, because she wanted to stay in touch with my father. She didn't want to happen to her what happened with my father. Before she died, she suddenly called up my sister and she said, if you want your father's art, you come and pick it up now. And Maggie called me up and said, you know, what shall we do? And I was here and I just said, we got to get it. Got to get gotta it. We've got to go and get it. Dad used to say to me, he, he did these big drawings, which I'll show you. They're absolutely unbelievable. And the whole story behind it, it's amazing. Wow. It's because he was one of the first liberators of the Malthausen concentration camp in the Second World War. He was 19 in the Second World War. He, he was affected him all his life he did these the drawing it's called the drawings of our lives it's his opus magnus and they are huge drawings each he's had three exhibitions with them uh and they are each one of those drawings is the size of that wall that's a big wall and there's 60 18 of them 18 of them yeah. and he said to me the last time i saw him he said eo he says please don't let my art get lost i said daddy i won't i will protect your art when she said that I said to my sister, we've got to go and get it, we've got to go and get it, we've got to go and get it. So we went down there, my sister and I collected as much as we could possibly get our hands on, and I brought it up to England. And we are selling it to put it out into the world, because that's where it has to go. So it's been a long process to get it sold in one thing or another, and finally found the right people to sell it. And so this is called Halfway. I'm more than halfway through my life, yet only halfway through the door, where filial duty and filial love are wedged between the right and wrong of grief and loss and letting go. To give up on what I want and know still holds aloft the lethal thread that punctures its way through my heart, tears apart the natural bond every child should expect that bound me to you through your art. I'm halfway there to giving up for what? A father or for an artist? I'm not sure which I love the most, the artist man or the artist's ghost, who haunt me now, just when I thought I had finally made it beyond the gate. I find I'm only halfway there, wrestling to convince myself that what is wrong is doing right when what is right hurts so much. Daddy, father, artist, God, I must bend my will to your absent voice. A branch that bends too far can break, 
And you never gave me any of this. You just asked me to take care of it. I'll ignore the choice I want to make and do my filial duty instead. My tears are not for your sake or mine. Therefore the hours we never spent, which you allowed another hand to take, stolen halfway through my life. And now you're gone and I am left with this sorrow, this art, this regret, this stumbling through a halfway door, one foot in and one foot out, for fear that once I'm through at last, it'll close forever on the past. Wow. That's how I felt about it. <laughs> Sorry. Read very beautifully. Once I did it, that went away, and it didn't close the door on the past. It has a way of doing that, doesn't yeah. it? It enabled me partly to forgive him, to stop being angry with him. It opened the door back to him. And with that, we reach the end of part one of our wonderful chat with E.O. Osborne. Please join us again for part two. Until then, thank you for joining me on the Poetic Podcast. You can find my poetry videos on YouTube and TikTok if you search for me, J. Rosanna. And I do hope you will join me again. I am Jay Rosanna, and this has been the Poetic Podcast. Bye-bye. Thank you.